Um, anyway, so the narrative tonight is, is this. If you, if you continue to believe that, right, you're going to see one day that you're on the wrong side of history. And what they mean with that, that could be anything uh, with, and we're not going to get into the specifics of that tonight, um, but it could, be, it could be anything with how, how are we supporting uh, gay marriage or the LGBTQ community, right? And we say, oh, man, no, we're against that. They're not welcome here, right? This is a phrase you hear. You're, you're on the wrong side of history, um, whatever that may be. And, and so we want to be able to, uh, man, I feel like I just opened a can of worms that I'm not going to answer right there, okay? Uh, I love all people, okay? And they're all, they're all welcome gladly to come into this building and worship Jesus, okay? I just want you to know that, um, if you didn't know that already. Okay, um, you're on the wrong side of history, and so what, what, what is it? And actually this morning, um, I don't know if any of you read the Star Trib, the Star Tribune. I actually don't, but I, because my in-laws are living with me, they, we, got, like, we keep getting free samples from the Star Trib, and so my wife grabbed the newspaper this morning, and the first thing was uh, the largest growing, the fastest growing church is none. And the whole idea is there are people, and, and mainly younger uh, millennials, not younger millennials, older millennials, like my age, so from born from 81 to 89, uh, that are just leaving the organized church in droves, right? That was the whole point of this. And, and there's still spiritual people. They still go to yoga and meditate, or they go to nature, do all these things, and they, they say we're still spiritual. Matter of fact, there was like, I think it was 36% of the people that identify as a nun, N-O-N-E, nun, that they, um, they actually say, no, I, 100%, I believe that there's a God. So they believe there's a God, but yet they want nothing to do with organized uh, religion, Okay. And that's, that's kind of what this whole article was about. And, and there was a few, few quotes that I pulled out of it. And I don't know the person that was, they were just quoting somebody that was interviewed. And so this isn't the author of this. It was somebody being quoted. I didn't know how to footnote it, but you can find it on, on it's on their website too. Uh, but someone said this, I can't imagine that, the only, or that only one religion has access to the pearly gates. I realize that there are all kinds of different paths to being a good person, right? That's, that's, that's what one of our peers in our community in the cities, that's what they believe. It's why they've left the church. Of like, man, that you can't just be the only way. And we talked about this, right? We talked about this with truth. And looking at if I'm a Christian, if I believe what the Bible says as God's word, and then I have Jesus who claimed to be the son of God showing up and saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes of the Father except through me. Right? If I, if I believe that, and I really believe that, According to this individual, I'm on the wrong side of history. All right, we got to include everybody. We, need to, we can't be intolerant with these kinds of things. But man, if, if I believe this to be true, I want them to believe it, right? So that's what I mean by on the wrong side of history. Another, another quote here. This was somebody else in the, in the story. It says, I don't, I don't have any anger with the church. I left because of the premise of the belief systems which don't work for me. Jesus was a wonderful teacher. And if you go back to when we were in our series on uh, I'm okay in Jesus, and we spent an entire thing of looking at the uh, C.S. Lewis quote, right? was Jesus, he either had to be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. That's what it comes down to. Because you can't claim to be God and still be a wonderful teacher. You're crazy or you're a liar, right? You, you can't do both of those things if you're not actually God. And so then they continue, was he the son of God? Aren't we all? Aren't we all just God's children, right? When we think about it at the end of the day. 
we're on the wrong side of history, right? As far as a church and as far as a church that says we uphold what scripture teaches and we believe it. And we believe that when Jesus says that he is God, that we actually believe that. And we just sang about it. Right? We just sang about him coming back in glory. Believe that. So if that's the case, what do we do? Do we go along with culture? Because, man, that's easy. Especially in our culture. We talked about this last week of like the whole tolerance, intolerance thing. Oh, that's good. That's, that's good for you. It's true for you. But, you know, I've, I've got my own way. Um, it'd be really easy for me to just be like, no, that's, that's cool for you, but, you know, but this is what God wants for me. Um, no, this is, this is God's story of how he came to redeem all of mankind. Um, anyways, so how do, we, how do we deal with this and how do we look at, at history from, from God's perspective? And so that's, that's what I want to do. And I, we're going to be doing a lot of uh, reading as far as scripture um, a lot, of, a lot of stories, not a whole lot of, of um, interjecting, at least I'm going to make sure I don't as best I can, of just reading a story and seeing how does God show up in history and move in incredibly powerful ways. Now, we, again, we just spent 33 weeks going through the book of Exodus, okay? So we can look back at all of those accounts where God, Yahweh, shows up in just power, and frees his people from slavery. And so tonight I want to look at the book of Daniel. It's not a book that probably we go to a lot, but Daniel chapter 4 and 5. I'm going to start in chapter 1 just for a little bit of context, history with what's going on here. Um, well, the, the book opens with a little bit of history, and I'll do a little bit more explaining here. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, um, so that was, would have been a king, one of the kings of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Okay, now listen. There is death, there is destruction, there is murder, and what it says is that the Lord delivered the king of his people, Israel, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? He's saying, this is what I'm going to do in history. And, and the problem, and, we, and we've, we've, we've talked about this before, but we, I think at least American Christianity paints what we deserve, right? Like, oh, I prayed a prayer. That was one of the things in the article as well. I, just, I, would, I was constantly praying for something. My prayer wasn't answered. Yeah, Jesus prayed things and it wasn't answered, right? God, remove this cup for me. I don't want to have to die this way. And God sends angels to comfort him, right? That, that, that's real life. And in some way, somehow, God is sovereign, and yet he's also really good and loving. Okay, so the Lord delivers Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure house, uh, put in the treasure house of his God, Okay. Nebuchadnezzar goes in, and this is a, this is a historical account um, from other extra-biblical accounts. Nebuchadnezzar goes in, he destroys Jerusalem, uh, and, and tears down the original temple, right? King, King uh, Solomon's temple that was in, in Jerusalem. And uh, they take all of the golden elements, right? When we went through Exodus, we in detail, right? Looked at all the elements, the table of showbread, and altar of incense, and all the, the bowls, and the gold, and all the, everything that was in there. And they take all those things and instruments that were to worship God, and he takes it back into his own temple for his gods, okay? 
That's what's going on in the beginning. Just timeline-wise, I don't know where it is. It was 605 B.C. Yep, there it is. 605 B.C., and Daniel is actually going to live until 536 B.C., okay? So for almost 70 years, he's going to live in exile. Uh, The guy who penned this book, uh, that he is forced to be a eunuch, uh, he is forced to live and take care of the king's harem, um, and he is forced to learn their language and learn their ways, and all the time he remains faithful to his God and to Yahweh. Um, and so it's not all rainbows and butterflies. Not for Daniel, it's not. But he loves God and he serves him. And we see God do some pretty incredible things here. Okay, so Daniel, chapter 4, we're going to skip forward here. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so what's going on here is Nebuchadnezzar, they, they have all these instruments and different things, and he's conquering things, and he's just powerful. Right? He's, he's, he's in control of like the known world at the time. It says 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power, and for the glory of my majesty. That's what he's saying, whether it was to himself or out loud. That's what he says. That's his passion. It's about him. He says, and even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. And this is what was decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Okay, that's it. <laughs> it's you you want to be about you. Guess what? Your royal authority is taken from you. You'll be driven away from these people, from people, and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what, he, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people, ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of the heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails and the claws of a bird. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored, and then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Okay, that's King Nebuchadnezzar. That's the guy who flaunts his authority, flaunts his majesty in the, in the face of the majestic creator, and God says, oh, no, you don't. He has a son, Belshazzar. Next chapter, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles to drink wine with them. Now, what, what I didn't get in here, he's drinking wine out of these instruments and, and golden cups and bowls that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Right, so he's mocking, hey, we're going we're gonna to get riotously drunk, and we're going to do this off of the materials that we stole from this great God of Israel. So doing this, and it says, uh, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Suddenly, a finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Was that the, in the lyrics of the, the writing on the wall? Yeah, so that's, who knew, right? I didn't know that. You didn't know that? God knew that. <laughs> hand, hand writing on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote it, and his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. 
The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, diviners, diviners, diviners. Let's call the whole thing off. Sorry. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means to be clothed in purple, will, will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, uh, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voice of the king and the nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Uh, in the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and acknowledged an understanding and the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles? My father, the king, brought you from Judah. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. And the wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means. But they could not explain it. Okay, sorry, I know a lot of words here, but it's, it, it, it's got a point here. You're intrigued. I mean, this, the Bible does like really cool storytelling, right? Now I heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answers the king. You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. I love, he says what he said. I'm going to read the writing. I'm going to tell you what it means. But now he's going to just preach at the king for a little while. And then he's going to tell him what it means. He says, your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations of peoples in every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to be put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from his people and given the mind of an animal, and he lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged the Most High God as sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth, and he sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and your nobles and your wives and your concubines, you drank from them, and you praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. <laughs> but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. All right, so, so now I'm going to tell you what the inscription means, right? This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. I'm, I'm sure I butchered that. Here's what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered your days and your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. 
Then at Belteshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple and a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed, he was promoted to the third highest ruler of the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. When God says, this thing's gonna happen, he means it. He did it in the entire account of Exodus. He does it in every single Old Testament book that we have where God says through, the, through prophets, this is going to happen. If we obey, if we continue to do this, then he will, he will let us live in this land of Canaan and we can have success here. But they don't. They, they turn away from their own God. And, he, and God then uses other kings like Xerxes and Artaxerxes and Nebuchadnezzar and King Cyrus and all these other pagan kings to punish his people because they know better. Just like this guy, Belshazzar. You, you knew, you, you watched this thing happen to your dad. And God shows up, Yahweh shows up in power and says, this is what's gonna happen. I'm reminded of the, 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 the wealthy parable, the wealthy man in the New Testament, right, who's, who's, who's talking and he says, man, look at all I've acquired. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna tear these barns down. I'm gonna build bigger barns. And God says, no, tonight your soul will be required of you. Right? When we think it's just about us, when it's not, then we've, we've got to be careful. Now, we see from this passage that God is in control. And I just want to read one, one commentary and what they had to say about Daniel. And I love, love their take on it. Because we read these stories and we kind of get wrapped up in the stories. And we forget the hero of the story isn't Daniel. Right? So that's kind of what he's getting at. He says, God saves a sinful and weak people and it preserves young men from impurity and old men from lions. He answers prayer and interprets dreams. He exalts the humble and humbles the proud. He vindicates the faithful and vanquishes the profane and he rescues covenant-forsaking people by returning them to their land of covenant. Daniel acts on the grace of God repeatedly, uh, the grace that God repeatedly provides, but God is always the one who first provides the opportunity resources and rescue needed for Daniel's faithfulness. And again, we've got to be careful to not read into this that, well, hey, I, I'm faithful. I'm doing this thing. Well, how, how come I don't always get the things, right? How, how come you're not always answering my prayer? And again, put yourself in Daniel's position. He's a, a slave who's forced to be a eunuch in a foreign land and as an exile, right? That doesn't sound like rainbows and butterflies in a good time. Right, so we got to be careful about what, what God's faithfulness actually is versus what we think his faithfulness should look like. If we reverse the order and make God's grace dependent on Daniel's goodness, then we forsake the gospel message Daniel is telling and produce the hero worship of adventure tales rather than divine worship of the gospel according to Daniel. So what do we do with our current state? Right? What, do we, what do we do when we look at the United States, and we're going to get into politics next week, okay? So I'm not going to open a lot of can of worms here. But right, what do we do when we look at uh, our president, when we look at the, the mid -elect, midterm elections that just happened, all these different things? Listen, what I do know is God is sovereign. But it's sometimes, what we just read, God uses certain individuals that aren't necessarily godly people in order to accomplish something that he sees on a grander scale. They're not God. They're leaders. Uh, Proverbs talks about how all these leaders, that God just moves their hearts, like the, how, he, how he turns a river. 
It's, it's nothing to him. And then, yet, but that's, that, again, we're, we're thinking about America, right? There are other leaders in the world that, that aren't American and are, and are very harsh and are very evil and wicked when it comes to how they deal with their people. And to look at something like this and say, somehow God's sovereignty overlays all of that. And somehow in this, he wants to point all people to himself. And he wants to point people to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is in control. And he's good. And he's loving. Right? No greater love has a man for his friend than the one that lays down his life for. Jesus laid his life down for you. Yeah, I'll, I'll worship that king. I'll listen and obey that king. He died for my sins, so I don't have to live in punishment. I'll follow him. I'll, I'll, I vote yes for King Jesus. Oh, um, I have a pet peeve. Can I talk about that for a minute? Um, as Christians, we should be front runners uh, in environmental care. Okay. I think, and I'm not sure why, uh, there's some really bad theologies that come out of how to interpret the book of Revelation, which I'm going to get to in a little bit here. When it comes to reading the book of Revelation, they say, oh, well, listen, God's just going to destroy everything anyways, so just let it do its thing, right? This global warming thing, right? Because I have incredibly conservative Christian friends who are like, hey, man, we're just speeding up when Jesus is coming back. What are you talking about? That's not the way this works, right? You can't make him come back any faster. So we got to be careful when it comes to how we care for the environment and what we want to do and, and clean. Man, there's, there, there are amazing things that, are, that, that, that people do with their hands and creative and beautiful things like this building, right? And if we care for these things, right? When God makes all things new, somehow I really believe that he's going to incorporate things that we do as human beings into this creation, and the way it should be, and the way it was supposed to be back in the garden. Right? He's not going to destroy it. He's going to make it new. He's going to perfect it, right? No more like slanting whole corner of a building like, no, I'm going to fix it because you humans don't know what you're doing, right? I don't know. I could be totally wrong on that, but I do know that we should care for what God has entrusted us as human beings, and that's this earth. Um, that was a command all the way from the beginning. Um, okay. All right. Here's, this is the whole point. This is why I gave those stories um, at the beginning of watching the clock, and I got to know when it ends, right? And, and uh, in college, I was an actor, and we did Shakespeare a lot. Shakespeare always has five acts, and I, and I know I've shared this before, so just bear with me, but there's always five acts in Shakespeare. And if you take a good actor and you, you delete, like, act four, okay, a good actor will be able to learn their character, know their backstory, all those different things, and, and, and memorize the script and know what's going on. And then, then they, if they know that, if they have Act 5 and they know how this all is going to end, they can, they can piece it together, okay? Like, yeah, or in Hamlet, it's just like, well, everybody dies, right? So, yeah, I get that part. So that means I need to do something in, in Act 4 to make everyone hate me, and then I can kill them all, like I, right? I mean, that would be, that would be a, that's a whatever, right? We know how this story ends. We know how it ends, and right now we're in Act 4. Right, there were things that we're a little confused by. We don't exactly know in certain situations how do we handle this, but we filter everything through Scripture. We, we've been looking at this for the last couple of weeks, but we know how it ends. And I want to I want to look there in the Book of Revelation, chapter five, verses one through fourteen. 
John is having a vision of the throne room, and he says this, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been, okay, easy for me to say. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. Okay, now, again, he's going to use some really fantastical language here, right? The book of Revelation, it's apocalyptic. And, and you're going to see that he sounds like a, like a teenage girl that he says like a billion times. He doesn't know how to not say like, right? It looked like this. It was kind of like, well, like, you know, like this. He does that all throughout this book because he doesn't know how to explain it, right? Um, so he says this. Uh, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. What's that mean? I don't know. And don't believe anybody who's like, this is what that means, right? Just calm down. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, right? So, so okay, so the, the lamb, this this lamb that looks as if it's been slain, goes to the throne and grabs this, this scroll. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. That is actually a really cool, really cool verse, right? Your, your prayers matter, right? And when we get to the end of the story, when we see how this is all going to be played out in majestic glory, we see that the, our prayers right, are poured out as an incense before God and his throne room. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God's persons from every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Because right now, the kingdom of God is not land. It's not buildings. Right? It's people. This is the kingdom of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that goes in and it changes lives. That's the kingdom. And I want to be part of that kingdom. But he says here, they're going to come back and they're going to reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is this lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. To him who sits on the throne. Whatever the turmoil is in our culture, in our world, whether in the United States or any other, any other place, Right now, the God of the universe and all of his sovereign authority and power is sitting down because he's not worried about this. He knows how this ends, and he's already written the ending. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. 
have one last quote here from Tim Keller, and then we'll, then we'll close here. He says this, the Christian answer to the overly optimistic or overly pessimistic late modern view of history is to point to the resurrection. Okay, what he's talking about here is the people who say, man, look, society, it's getting better, right? Things are going upward, right? Overly optimistic. And then at the same time, looking at it at the world and just saying, oh, we're, you know, this world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? Just what's the point, right? Let it, let it burn. Overly, that'd be really pessimistic. It says this, Christianity is at the same time both far more pessimistic about history and the human race than any other worldview. Why? Because we know how, what happens in the garden. And we see sin enter the world and touch everything. And everything is tainted by sin. That there's not going to be a utopian society ever until Jesus comes back and the King of kings and Lord of lords sits on his throne. Then there will be peace. So, the human, so we should have a, 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 both a far more pessimistic about history than, than human race than any other worldview and far more optimistic about the material world's future than any other worldview, right? We should care about the material because we know it's all going to be made new again. Our future is a renewed material universe with resurrected bodies. But of course, resurrection always comes after death and destruction. There's no reason for Christians to believe that every decade and stage in history will be better than the stage before. But if we believe that all is being brought infallibly to a glorious end. So, the Christian view of history avoids the utopianism and over-optimism of modernity, and he spends a lot of time talking about that in his book as well. He says, but then, but also the pessimism and NU, I'd looked that up, and I don't remember what, what it meant, uh, of dystopianism, okay? Uh, a lack of looking at, like, dystopian, looking at this, it's all just going to be destroyed, right? It's all, it's all just where, where everything's going to, to fall apart. To not be caught up in either one of those. And why? Because Jesus is seated on his throne. And before he leaves, he stands in front of his disciples and he says, all authority has been given to me. Now I give it to you. I want you to build this kingdom. I want you to go into the world. I want you to light up the darkness and do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. We just sang it. Uh, the song, one of the lyrics there says, forsaking all for your own fame. And again, I want us to be careful of not understanding and thinking hey, the, the wrong side of history is, is going and attacking society and at the same time just standing back and saying, there's no hope, right, we're, we're, we're done. But looking at that and saying, what can we do? What can I forsake in my beliefs and, and like politically or about this world or whatever it may be for your fame? Because it's about you and it's not about me. Um, Jesus tells the apostle Paul, uh, when, after his conversion, uh, when he went from Saul to Paul, um, he's talking to another guy, Gattas, and he says, hey, I need you to bring Paul to me, and I need to tell him how much he's going to suffer for my name. Right? Like, whoa, I don't, I don't like that news. Right? Job chapter 42, right? Job had just lost 10 of his kids and his own health and all that he possessed. And in the end, he looks at God and he says, I now understand things that are just too wonderful for me. I cannot even begin to comprehend how it is that you are in control and how you are sovereign. But he says, but I do know that you're good. 
And so we can look at things and look at history, but what we can do is we can look at his scripture and look at his word and say, man, he's good because of Jesus. And we can say he's in control because we know what Christ has already accomplished on the cross. So in conclusion, who do you really believe is the Lord of history? When we think about this, we think, like, do we really believe that God is sovereign? Right? And this is just me speaking as a, as a human being. Right? This, this is difficult sometimes. Right? I look at, at pain and suffering and death. Right? And the Hebrew word is Maranatha. Right? It was the college I went to, Maranatha Baptist Bible College. <laughs> Maranatha means, come Lord Jesus. Right? That is a daily prayer. What are we waiting for? And then I had a son. And now I'm like, wait, <laughs> just wait. I want him to believe this. This is really important. Do we believe that God is the Lord of all history? And are you worshiping the Lord who is seated on his throne? We're going to do that now. We, um, like every week, take communion here and um, would invite you, if you're just a follower of Jesus, I'd love to have you just come and, and take of these elements. They're not anything magical. They represent what Christ did for us. And the bread, which represents the broken body for Christ, and the, the juice, which represents the blood of Christ that was shed to cover our sins. And as we do that, we're going to sing, and we're going to take these elements, and we're just going to praise that God is seated on his throne, that he's not pacing around wondering and worrying what's going to happen. And the phrase that I love, and I use it, I've said it a million times here, from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, it's a translation for little kids, but in the Israel, or in Isaiah, excuse me, it says that um, he, will make, uh, he will make right all the, all the wrong, right? That, that all, the, all the wrong will become untrue. That's the phrase. All the wrong will become untrue. I do believe that. And if you do, let's worship together. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are in control. I thank you that you are not gold or silver or wood or hay or stubble. I thank you that you are not even just comfort or meditation or creation. You are the God who created all those things. And so God, would we worship not just the creator God, but that we would worship you as you know what you're doing. And that at times where we are just confused and frustrated about what's going on around us, historically speaking, that we don't understand what's happening or how could you have let this happen, God, that we would know that you love us, you care for us, and we know that because you sent your son to die for us. So God, would we exalt you and exalt your son tonight, Jesus, who is seated on his throne in power and authority and it's in his most precious, precious, precious name that we pray, amen.